We continue our way working through uh, the minor prophets. Remember, they're called minor not because they're lesser, just happen to be smaller by and large than the other ones. And uh, so we are up to our eighth minor prophet, which is the book of Habakkuk. And we are going to just read chapter 3. But again, I encourage you to read these, these prophets in their entirety. I think you'll find it very profitable, especially this book, Habakkuk. I was talking to someone from, from this church, and I was really encouraged when they said, I really love the book of Habakkuk. And I said, well, why is that? And then they proceeded to tell me like five different things from the book. I was like, wow, you know, you've really looked at this, and, and I think that we can find the same thing. I'll admit, Nahum was a little bit tougher to find some. It's like, what am I going to say about this one? But Habakkuk, not too hard. And by the grace of God, it will encourage our hearts to trust in him all the more. And so, uh, and, and that's kind of the theme, finding joy in the midst of life's anxieties. And I think you'll see that, particularly in chapter 3. Before I read this, though, let me draw your attention in the bulletin. There is an outline to this sermon. And uh, if, you're, if you're so inclined, you can follow along with that outline. And, and that will help you kind of see where I'm going. And... So feel free to use it for review as you feel led. And we'll be continuing to provide that, God willing, each week, just to help you out. So Habakkuk chapter 3, let's listen to God's holy and inspired word. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth, which you all know what that means, right? No, nobody really knows what it means. It's some sort of musical term, just, and there's a couple of them here. He says, it's like a prayer. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs 
tremble. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Let's pray. O Lord, indeed, you are awesome and mighty and glorious in power. When you come, the earth shakes. And O Lord, as we come before you, we desire that you would come today to shake our hearts and to enable us to put away those things from us that are not needed and that would distract us from the glory of who you are. And so, Lord, reveal yourself to us. Help us to see you anew in a vision so that we might say whatever comes our way, that we will rejoice in you. This we ask through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years ago, or maybe two years ago, my daughters uh, finally got uh, a mammal pet. We had had fish before, so... And they were guinea pigs, and we still have a couple of them. One thing I noticed about the guinea pigs is that they are anxious creatures. They are, you may, the slightest move would make them scurry off to their little homes. Even though there may be no na- danger, they were just scared all the time. You'd move your hand to touch them, boom, they would be moving or jump. Or, and uh, it was... They, it was just interesting to see how much, how fearful they were. But in a way, it makes sense, right? Because they're little animals in a big world with lots of creatures that would like to eat them. And so it's a good idea to be pretty cautious, pretty anxious. Their anxious system helps them be able to deal with life and threats. But you know, as I thought about guinea pigs, I said, you know, we're a lot more like guinea pigs than we'd like to think. Because we're always like running. We may not literally run. We may not like to run. But in our hearts, we're scared. We see things that look scary, and we start to run. We start to get worried. We run off to our little holes. We distance from people and so on. Because we're anxious like guinea pigs. And it makes sense to a degree, right? Because we're small people in a big world. And we can see lots of threats. Indeed, we're actually in, a, in some ways in a tougher position than the guinea pigs. Because guinea pigs basically can only see what's in front of them. But we can imagine all sorts of things. Our imagination can invent endless threats. And so we're a very anxious people. And, you know, in some ways it helps us because we're small people in a big world and, and there are a lot of scary things. But it can also, we can also end up running all the time from things that aren't necessarily going to hurt us or we can lose sight or we can become so overwhelmed by these things because we can see so much that it debilitates us, that it keeps us from moving forward, that it keeps us from experiencing joy. We even find ourselves losing hope altogether. And so I think the question that Habakkuk is wrestling with, he doesn't say it directly, but is how do I find joy in the midst of all these anxieties? And that's what he's wrestling with. And that's the point that he comes to. 
And I think if we see what Habakkuk did, then we can see how we can find joy in God in the same way that he did. We can see that God helped Habakkuk find joy in the midst of life's anxieties, and he will help you. So he struggled with anxiety, but he found joy. So I want us to, to, to understand that. Let's look at this in three ways. I want us to see the problems that Habakkuk sees, the vision Habakkuk sees, and then the joy that Habakkuk finds. So the problems Habakkuk sees, the vision Habakkuk sees, and the joy Habakkuk finds. Now, in order to understand the problems that Habakkuk sees, we need to kind of go back to chapters 1 through 1 and 2. And so, sometimes it's not always clear what's happening in the prophets, like what's the structure of a book or how it all fits together. But Habakkuk is not one of those books. It's pretty straightforward, pretty easy to understand. (laughs) And it begins with Habakkuk making a complaint. He has an issue with what's going on. Listen to what he says in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So he's crying out because things are not right. There is no justice. He sees people who are doing what is right being persecuted. Do you ever cry out like that? Do you ever say, this has gone wrong. God, why don't you do anything about it? Why don't you listen to me? That's what Habakkuk was saying. And the Lord came back to him and gave an answer. He had an answer for Habakkuk. And here's what it was. He was going to send Babylon. Listen, verses 5 through 6. He says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, remember that these great empires that we've been talking about, we've dealt mostly with Assyria up to this point, but now there's a new empire that is coming on the scene, and that is the empire of Babylon. And what God is saying here is, I am not going to let these injustices go unpunished. I'm not going to let people just go on forever acting however they want. I am going to punish them. And I'm going to send Babylon, this great empire, to punish these people who are doing injustice in your land. And that was not a really satisfying answer to Habakkuk. He didn't like that at all. Listen to what he says in verses 12 through 13. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them, that is the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then 
Do you tolerate the treacherous? Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In other words, how can God use a nation like Babylon that has all sorts of its own injustices? How can you take a nation that's probably more unjust than the one that is the, than these people in our land that are doing the injustice and punish them with this nation? What about them? I can easily imagine, like, in our nation, you know, you have a lot of complaints raised on both sides of the aisle against the injustices of the other side. And it was, it'd be as if, you know, someone's bringing up these injustices and God says to them, okay, I'm going to deal with the injustices in the United States. I'm going to send China to smash them. And we'd be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I mean, China kind of has some of its own problems, right? That's almost exactly what we're dealing with here, is that sort of complaint. What's going on? But God has an answer to that as well. So he may use Babylon for a time, but he will deal with them. Listen to what he says in 2, 16 through 17. He's saying to, speaking like directly to Babylon, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. In other words, God is going to deal with them as well. He may, for a time, use them to humble the people of God, but he's also not going to just let them go on forever. He's going to deal with all the wrongs in the world. And so what, what conclusion should we draw from this? Well, Habakkuk says in verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In other words, every single one of us should recognize that we are dealing with an awesome and glorious and holy God and every single one of us needs to stand, as it were, in silence before him. We should humble ourselves before this great and awesome God. Now, God not only said this, but he showed it to Habakkuk. And that's what we see in this, in this next section, the vision that Habakkuk sees. The vision that Habakkuk sees was a way of confirming what he was saying to Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk describes this vision that he saw in a prayer that he prays to the Lord. And that's what we read earlier, chapter 3. It is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And it begins with him again asking the Lord to do something amazing. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, he's beginning to see what God has done. Now he's saying, do it again. Do it again. Let's see you act in this day. Do you ever pray like that to the Lord? Say, I've seen you work before. Do it again. Do it in my life. Do it in my family. Do it in my church. Do it in my nation. Do it in the world. Let's see you act again. That's, that's what Habakkuk is praying. And he describes, though, what he saw in a vision. And we see that God comes down 
from heaven in great power and glory like he did at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, which is where he gave the Ten Commandments. Listen to verses 3 through 4 of chapter 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. He's coming down again. It's glorious and powerful. It's awesome. Like it was at Mount Sinai when everyone was afraid. And it's so glorious that nature can barely stand it. It's like the world's breaking apart when the world, when he comes down. Look at verse 6. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. And then in verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. And the sun and moon stand still and so on. It's like his coming is so powerful that the creation he made can barely contain it. It's like it's falling apart because he's so glorious. Like when he uh, came, when Pharaoh was chasing the Israelites to the Red Sea and the the sea separated so the Israelites could walk on dry land. It's his power and his glory that is coming. And when when he comes, then he destroys the enemy. Look at verses 13 through 14. He says, You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. In other words, they're all excited. We're going to crush these people. And all of a sudden, God comes and just smashes them and takes them out. That's what he sees. It's like when God came to Egypt and and destroyed Pharaoh and the people went out free because he had enslaved them. That's what he, the vision that he is seeing. So this vision is just great and glorious. I encourage you just to read it again, kind of let it sink into your hearts. And we might ask, so when does this vision, when is this vision fulfilled? When does God come down like that? Well, I don't think we need to see a specific time when God, when this is like, a, I don't think this is a prophecy of a specific time that God comes, but rather sort of a vision of the things that God is doing in history. And so it kind of encompasses all of them. It's like when God comes, it's awesome, it's powerful, it's glorious, and he's going to do that a lot. He does it when he defeats Babylon. He did it when he defeated Assyria. He did it when he, when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and he's going to do it again. But we might say that the chief time where God comes down with this awesome and glory is on the cross. And there, on the cross, he defeats the great enemy, Satan, so that the peoples of the world can be forgiven and renewed and brought into the kingdom of Christ. Listen to how Paul describes God's coming in Colossians 2, 14 through 15. He said, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing, nailing it to the cross. But then listen to what he adds here. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, like he exposed their shame because he had utterly defeated them at the cross. And so at the cross, Satan is defeated. And the world is definitive, God wins the definitive victory. And that's going to go on and on until he finally removes all evil at the end of history. But the point is that we need to get this vision. When we're, when we're struggling, when things are difficult, when we see injustices around us, we need to see that this is the God who is coming. 
that we're not just dealing with some weak God off there who can't do anything about it. We're dealing with the awesome and mighty and glorious God. And that's what the gift that God was giving to Habakkuk to see this vision. But what if things don't turn out exactly like we'd like? What if, what if today we start, we, we have hopes for this day, this, this very day, and then all of a sudden everything starts going wrong and, and everything gets frustrated? You ever have days like that where you had one plan and it's like falling apart, nothing's working right? What do we do in those cases? What do we do in the bigger cases when we're, we see something like our economy falling apart? What if we lose our home? What if we have to use up our retirement savings? What if we get cancer? What if our kids go off the rails? What if our spouse dies? These are the sorts of things that Habakkuk is processing here. And that's the things he's thinking about. That's the things he's contemplating. That's the subject of this text. Those sorts of things happening, those sorts of fears, those sorts of anxieties, those sorts of difficulties. What that we face on a daily, yearly basis. Listen to how he describes it in verse 18. Or 17, rather. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. So in other words, all the things that they rely on for security, for provision, they're all gone. What happens if that happens? And the surprising thing is that in the midst of that, contemplating all that loss, such a terrible economy, things where they don't know how they're going to get their next meal, he has a surprising declaration. And we see that what Habakkuk finds as he contemplates kind of the worst case scenario is joy, is joy. We see the joy that Habakkuk finds. Listen to verse 18. He says, in spite of that, you take my worst fears, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Notice he doesn't just say, like, if things go really bad, I can be okay. He actually says, if things go really bad, I can still rejoice. I can still have joy. I can still have joy in God my Savior. Now that's not something he recognized that he would be able to produce on his own. Because that's hard to do. When we look at the worst case scenario, it's hard to say, okay, now I'll have joy. That is a gift from the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. In other words, to do way more than he ever thought possible because the Lord is his strength. He doesn't have to rely on his own resources. He has something much more, which is the Lord himself. And so God gave him this vision and that enabled him to see, by his grace, joy in the midst of all of life's anxieties. Now I want us to just step back for one second and ask, kind of look at what Habakkuk did so that we might say, how then can we find joy in the midst of life's anxieties? 
How do we get to that same place where we contemplate even these worst case scenarios and say, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior? How can that happen? So let me give you four steps. First, he did not ignore life's problems. A lot of times we have these worst case scenarios in our head, but we kind of just push them below the surface. We don't really want to think about them. We don't want to look them in the face because it's painful to think about the bad things that could happen. And so we just kind of push them down. But I want you to see that Habakkuk didn't do that. He brought it right up front and said, this is what I'm thinking about. This is the thing I'm scared of. This is the thing I have anxiety over. But then secondly, he didn't just leave it there. He, he, he goes as a, he, he, he tries to wrestle with it. There's a wrestling with this problem. You see, he doesn't just say, That's, I'm going to just let it sit there and defeat me. I'm going to fight against it. And this whole passage, in this whole book, is Habakkuk wrestling with all these fears and anxieties. That's what he's doing. And that's what we need to do too. We need to, to not just let them sit there, but we need to fight against them and say, how can we overcome them with the victory of faith? It's not easy. It is a wrestling match. And that leads us to the third thing. But he didn't try to do it just on his own. He brought these problems before God. He brought these problems before God. So you see, like, again and again, I'm telling you, read the prayers of the Bible. They are astonishing prayers. They're not the prayers that we often pray. But like, right at the beginning, he's like, God, why aren't you listening to me? It is like, I am, why are you like a person who's just sleeping? Why don't you do anything? Why have you let everybody run over us? Why, what about this person? I mean, why aren't you doing something about him? It's really quite astonishing. But the point is that he doesn't just push the emotions aside. He lets them come out and he brings them before the Lord. And the Lord wants us to pour out our heart before him. Our tendency is to say, we kind of got to get everything straightened out. Then we can talk to the Lord. No. Go with him, to him as you are. With all your struggles, with all your difficulties, with all your trials, with all your anxieties, with all your fears, with all your anger, and go before the Lord and process it before him. That's what's, this book, that's what's happening in this book. It's like a conversation with God. Here's what I'm struggling with, God. God says this. Okay, I don't like that. God says, okay, well, what about this? And then finally, see the fourth thing, is that he found a vision of God in, after this wrestling that brought him joy. He found a vision of God that brought him joy. So it wasn't like immediately he was okay with everything in the world or feeling joy. It was after a wrestling with all the things that were going on, with all the big challenges of life before the Lord, and finally he sees the Lord in his glory, in his power, in his awesomeness. And then it's like, okay, okay. Things are going to work out well. So I can have joy in the midst of life's anxieties. Joy, it's a, it's a raising up of our spirit, an elation of our spirit that arises from knowing that all things are going to work out well. And so that's what Habakkuk is seeing. is like, whatever the things are going on in the moment, all things are going to go 
work out well. However badly things may go today, that's not the end of the story. God is going to work out all things so that even when we don't, when things aren't working out, we can rejoice in God our Savior. And you know, that's all the more true, not because we've just seen this vision of God that we have here, which can help us tremendously, and I encourage you to take it in, but because we have seen the definitive coming of God into history in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can say with confidence in the midst of sorrow or persecution or famine or sword, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And if we really see that, then we can have joy even when the worst case scenario comes about. That's the conviction that God gave to Habakkuk that all things, everything, was going to turn out well. And that's what God will do for us too. He can give us the ability to find joy in the midst of life's anxieties. If we are willing to enter into that process with him, wrestling with God, wrestling with the issues, and what God will do is he will show us himself in a way that will convince us that we are going to be not just okay, but actually great in the end. That all things are going to turn out well. So we can say, From the heart, with the prophet Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Amen.